scientists talk about life on another planet, they're speculating, they're imagining, they have no proof that it exists. Uh, and when artists, when painters, when novelists imagine these other worlds, uh, yeah, they're also imagining, they're speculating, uh, they're trying to deal with something that is not proven, uh, that is not yet proven and uh, might not be might not be proven in a while. Hello and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shirin Hamza and I'm here today with Dr. Matthias Detterman, Associate Professor of History at Virginia Commonwealth University in Qatar. We are here today to talk about his new book, Islam, Science Fiction, and Extraterrestrial Life, The Culture of Astrobiology in the Muslim World. A lot of science fiction is indeed saturated with colonial tropes, uh, right? That especially space-themed science fiction. Either we going to another place, another planet, conquering space, colonizing Mars, settling another world, or it is about the aliens invading us, uh, colonizing us. Perhaps related to that, that indeed the genre of modern science fiction emerged in the 19th century as the period of high imperialism, uh, uh, the period uh, when uh, European, when Western powers tried to scramble for almost every bit uh, of the inhabited world, of uh, our inhabited planet. Welcome to the podcast, Matthias. Thank you so much, Shireen, for having me. It's a great honor and great privilege to be here. How did you first decide to write this book and, and what is astrobiology? So astrobiology is the study of life in the universe. Uh, it is a contraction of astronomy and biology or the study of life in the stars, uh, in the planets, outside Earth. Uh, but we now know that there are uh, thousands of other planets in the universe orbiting other stars. Uh, we also know of more and more Earth-like planets. And this raises the question, of course, is there life on these other worlds? People have wondered for centuries and millennia, are there other Earths? Are there other worlds? Are there people living on other worlds? Uh, and uh, if there are people on other worlds, I think this uh, raises quite profound philosophical, ethical, uh, and religious questions as well, uh, right? Uh, so are we in any way special then uh, if there are other life forms? Uh, also, if, for instance, those life forms might be more advanced 
or their civilizations superior to us. Or many of us think that we are the pinnacle of creation on earth, uh, that we are the smartest, most organized uh, people on this particular world. Uh, right? We have called this most recent era in the planet's history the Anthropocene, uh, the era of the human. Right? You cannot get more human-centric than that. Uh, but of course, uh, if we indeed find life elsewhere on the in the universe, that might dislodge humans from the center. As you say, um, there there's a strong element of imagination that's part of both literature published in journals of astrobiology, as well as these um, as as works of fiction. And something I found so provocative in the book is that you really show that the context of production of both fiction as well as um, as scientific articles on astrobiology happens in every conceivable configuration of political uh, regimes. Any kind of uh, system of governance that exists in the 20th century has also facilitated the production of um, astrobiological work. So I was wondering if you can comment a little bit on your your arguments uh, about the relationship between um, scientific imagination and and the political context that facilitates its production. Now, it is perhaps understandable that people often associate free thinking with political liberalism. Uh, and it is certainly true that art and science benefit from uh, from political liberties, benefit from an absence of censorship, uh, that uh, if artists and scientists um, don't have to fear uh, because of a politically repressive regime, uh, yes, then uh, they are freer to produce things. However, uh, I would argue that we can find free thinking nonetheless in any context, including very repressive contexts, uh, including non-democratic or authoritarian countries. Uh, and sometimes uh, the oppression, the repression, the censorship uh, might even indirectly encourage works of science fiction. Uh, so if you are living under censorship and you want to uh, criticize uh, the current politics, if you do that in a work of realism, let's say a realist novel, a realist movie, uh, then you might get in trouble. Uh, so um, let's say uh, you're in Egypt under Gamal Abdel Nasser and you want to criticize the corruption uh, or the, uh, of the government. If you put this in a very realist terms, uh, you might end up in prison or uh, get tortured uh, or worse. However, uh, if you put your criticism in an indirect way uh, in the work of science fiction, then you have plausible deniability if somebody wants to get you in trouble. Uh, then you can say, well, yes, I'm talking about corruption here uh, in my novel, but can't you see the novel is set on Mars? It's not set in Egypt. 
uh, it's set far in the future. It's not set in the present. No, 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 I'm not trying to criticize uh, Kamal Abdel Nasser here. This liberated, free genre of science fiction uh, might might have a special place, actually, in, uh, in contexts of limited freedom. We also get a sense of the variety of attitudes towards the pre-modern textual tradition, as well as scripture, on the part of these authors, as well as um, some of the scientists and the Muslim, I believe you call them religious entrepreneurs, who are are weaving together uh, modern astronomy and and scriptural interpretation in their works. What is the relationship between Islam and the works of science fiction and astrobiology that you've studied in the book? In the modern world, science in general, including astronomy, has become a huge source of authority, right? Um, Where science is often equaled with the truth, uh, but where science is often equaled with what is right. Uh, Like, if somebody says to you, do you believe in science? Uh, The connotation of that is almost, do you believe in truth? Do you believe in what is right? Because science is true. Uh, Science is right. Uh, So many people, Christians, Muslims, uh, members of other religions, uh, 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 have used the authority of science uh, to bolster also their own religion in competition with one another, with one another. So Christian missionaries uh, sought to appeal to uh, the authority of modern science, which they saw as Western science, which they saw as Christian science, uh, in order to show uh, the superiority of their faith. And naturally, understandably, uh, in response, Muslim entrepreneurs uh, who are trying to resist uh, missionaries and uh, colonialists uh, were trying to push back uh, against those claims of modern science for Christianity by claiming modern science uh, for uh, for Islam. And they read uh, modern science into the Quran, uh, including astronomical ideas and astrobiological ideas. Uh, the most important being uh, the idea of the plurality of worlds. Uh, this is an old idea that uh, goes back in the Western tradition uh, to the Greeks uh, as well, but it is a very strong idea in the Quran uh, as well. Uh, God is repeatedly referred to in the Quran as Rabb al Alamin, Lord of the world. And interestingly, that word, uh, alam, world, only ever comes up in the plural uh, in the uh, in the Quran, and in an interesting plural form too. Uh, so the normal uh, conventional 
Arabic plural of alam, world, would be awalim. Uh, but the specific plural here, alamin, is a plural form that mirrors a form that is normally restricted uh, to sentient beings. Uh, so, muslimin, Muslims, or nabiyin, prophets. Uh, alamin, the word itself, uh, suggests that not only that there are many worlds, but maybe there is a sentience to it. For many, many centuries, Muslim scholars have tried to make sense of this. These different worlds have been variously interpreted as the worlds of the humans, the worlds of the jinn, the worlds of the angel. Uh, but of course, uh, the plurality of worlds, the idea that there's more than one realm, uh, also fits very well with our modern understand, modern astronomical understanding uh, that there are many planets in the universe, uh, many stars, many galaxies, and maybe even uh, many universes. Uh, so this Quranic idea of there being more than one world uh, was very, very easy to adopt by Muslim religious entrepreneurs who wanted to show through astronomy and through astrobiology how modern and how authoritative Islam is. The second chapter of your book really takes us into these charged and mutually generative exchanges between missionary colleges, the journals that they published, and, as you say, the Muslim entrepreneurs who are reading this content and who are in conversation with these missionaries and with those who are publishing in their journals. Something I loved about this chapter is that you bring together literature on the history of science popularization, in other words, the history of how modern science came to be understood as something everyone, every reader should be familiar with and the people who were involved in making that happen, and the literature on Muslim and Christian modernizers and, and uh, the history of Jesuits and Protestant missionaries in the Middle East. Uh, debates surrounding life on Mars, a possible civilization on Mars, uh, just captured uh, the imagination and the interest uh, of so many people, and hence easily found their way into uh, the 19th century uh, scientific and uh, religious press. The idea of canals on Mars is a 19th century uh, idea and not su not surprisingly so the 19th century was that great century of uh, canal building canals were seen in the 19th century as these great achievements of human engineering human uh, ingenuity these great these great signs of uh, humans uh, conquering nature. The 19th century was also a period where building of telescopes was more developed. Uh, and 
people started looking at Mars uh, in more detail with these uh, telescopes and they believed uh, that they saw lines on the Martian surface uh, with their telescopes. And perhaps with that 19th century mindset, they were thinking that maybe those lines on the Martian surface uh, were indeed canals uh, showing us that there is a great civilization uh, on that planet, uh, maybe an even uh, superior uh, civilization to us. Uh, so uh, this was a very, very exciting idea that uh, fascinated people around the world. Uh, and that is also an idea that entered uh, the Arabic periodical press. The late 19th century uh, was this, uh, as you mentioned, the period of the Nahda, the period of the Arab uh, Renaissance, popularizing science uh, through uh, publications like Al-Muqtatav, uh, but also popularizing religion, spreading religion, uh, sometimes uh, in the same or very similar kinds of periodicals. Uh, so a 20th century, early 20th century publication like Al-Manar, uh, edited by uh, Muhammad Rashid Ridha, was not that different from a magazine that was trying to popularize scientific knowledge. So the popularization of religious knowledge, spreading of a religious form of enlightenment, uh, often took quite similar forms to the spreading of a scientific form of enlightenment. In addition to these exciting debates happening in Al-Manar and Al-Muqtataf, you take us to South Asia with the establishment of the Mission College in Lahore and the Muhammadan Anglo-Oriental College, which most will now know as the Aligarh Muslim University, which, as you point out, was called the Madrasatul Ulum, or the School of Sciences. You show how connected the Muslims in, in British colonial India are to Muslims publishing in, in Britain itself and the kind of new foundations of, of Muslim societies in England. And one of the fascinating things that um, Muslims are doing in both um, the Middle East, South Asia, and also in the colonial metropoles are, as you say, reading modern science into the Quran. Um, and I just wanted to highlight a few of the verses that have seemed to be quite uh, fertile for astrobiological imagination um, and the interpretations that you cite by, for example, Mirza Tahir Ahmed, one of the leaders of the Ahmadiyya and many other, other scholars of this period. So there's a verse in uh, Surah Al-Talaq about, about God creating seven layers and likewise for the earth. And there's another verse in Surah Al-Shura, uh, among God's signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth and all living beings that he dispersed throughout both. 
Uh, so this question of like, what is the button in this verse, for example, or how are the skies layered like the earth has, has proved very fertile for some of these thinkers? The 19th century context, especially the context of British India, uh, was one of intense competition between different communities, uh, a competition between uh, various Muslim groups of India, uh, Hindu groups, also Christian missionaries, and the 19th century was also a time when the power associated with science and technology became increasingly clear to people. Many colonized people realized that uh, what gave the colonizers power was not their numbers, uh, but it was uh, the science and uh, the technology that was based they controlled, they mastered. For instance, the astronomical knowledge uh, that allowed British ships uh, to navigate uh, the world successfully and uh, build an overseas empire. So if science was increasingly then seen as a source of power, including here the science of astronomy, uh, then it is not surprising that Various people, uh, including Syed Ahmed Khan, wanted to claim uh, and spread science and scientific understandings among their communities. Uh, and Mirza Tahir Ahmad, whom you mentioned, is one, uh, one of those uh, later of a 20th century example of a religious leader, a religious entrepreneur, who wants to show how scientific slash true slash correct Islam is, uh, how Islam and science are in harmony with one another. And he's only one of many, many people uh, who have made those arguments, just like there are armies of people in Christianity who've claimed the uh, harmony between religion between Christianity and and science. In a slightly different tradition, I think are the novelists that you discuss in the late 20th and early 21st century, though you do bring up some early 20th century examples as well. And um, something of a trend that I think uh, readers of your book will notice are the themes of intergalactic war and empires among the stars. I just wanted to know what you make of this and what we should make of this. I certainly read a gendered aspect to this, uh, as many of the authors who you cite who kind of imagine these kind of wartime 
stories playing out among the galaxies are men, um, and it seems to have a sort of masculinist focus on political um, conflict as a driver of plot. But um, how else should we understand this trend in in Islamic science fiction and also in science fiction written by Muslim authors? I love that you bring in gender aspect. It is true that a lot of uh, uh, science fiction authors uh, in the uh, uh, in the Muslim world are men, uh, just like a lot of uh, science fiction authors in the West were men. And I'm using here the past tense because. Uh, I think the demographics of the genre have been rapidly changing over the last decades, uh, where uh, more and more women writers in the West and in the Muslim world are coming to the forefront. Uh, and even those Muslim women authors and Western women, uh, European, North American, Christian uh, women authors that perhaps always existed, uh, are also uh, getting more critical attention. Uh, it is true that perhaps some science fiction uh, in the Muslim world as well as in the West is very juvenile, uh, has these simple plot lines of good versus evil, uh, are very action-driven, uh, feature a lot of battles, lots of violence, uh, which unfortunately is also a kind of characteristic of novels that have a certain mass market appeal, right? Uh, so if you are a science fiction author in a Muslim majority country, and perhaps because you're writing science fiction, you are not receiving critical and intellectual recognition, right? You're not seen as producing a high literature, uh, where you're not receiving positions in the cultural bureaucracy, sort of, you're not getting, let's say, salary memberships of cultural councils and the like, or academies of the Arabic language and the like, right? If you um, are not part of the cultural bureaucracy, if you're trying to make it, make a living as a writer, uh, just trying to live off the sale of your books, uh, it is understandable that you choose elements of, in at least parts of your books, elements uh, that will sell. Uh, and that includes sex, and that includes armor, uh, which uh, is perhaps more acceptable uh, than sex in many uh, conservative Muslim contexts, and that is violence, right? So if you have a novel that includes a lot of uh, fighting between uh, human heroes and uh, alien villains. Uh, that's the kind of thing that, uh, yeah, uh, can make your book commercially successful. That's a really important point, I think, that, um, that gets also at the question of associations of, of writers. And I believe in, in multiple chapters of your book, you introduce us to the way science fiction writers have um, founded associations in the Middle East, South Asia, and Southeast Asia. So can you tell us a little more about the history of such associations in these regions? So science fiction in general is an incredibly 
popular genre, but has not received uh, as much uh, critical attention as other kinds of uh, genres of, uh, of literature. Uh, so, um, yes, there have been many, many best-selling science fiction authors in many countries of the uh, Muslim world, and I can uh, name here a few. I can name Ahmed Khalid Tawfiq of Egypt, or Nabil Farooq, also of Egypt, or uh, Muhammad Zafar Iqbal of uh, Bangladesh, uh, or Ibn Safi uh, of Pakistan, uh, and there are many others. Uh, other representatives of so-called high literature have looked down on a lot of science fiction production. And interestingly, as far as I'm aware, no author who has who is, has been primarily identified with science fiction, no author like this has ever won the Nobel Prize for Literature, right? Even though science fiction has existed since the 19th century and we have, and names such as Mary Shelley and Jules Verne or H.G. Wells or Aldous Huxley are, if they are not household names, they're really widely known. The books of Ahmed Khaled Tawfiq or uh, Raouf Wasfi or Nabir Farooq have reached hundreds of thousands, if not millions, uh, of readers. Uh, so I think in order to overcome that marginalization in the wider literary sphere, uh, science fiction authors have begun to organize uh, in groups such as uh, the Egyptian Society for Science Fiction, uh, where even if, let's say, the Egyptian government itself uh, doesn't provide uh, the same level of support for science fiction as it does for other kinds of literature, uh, at least science fiction authors, they create these solidarity groups, they uh, create, uh, create organizations that seek to build a fan base, uh, that organize lectures, uh, that hold book talks, uh, and the like. Uh, uh, you know, and ultimately uh, build communities uh, surrounding science fiction. This also reminds me of the wonderful section you have about the Indonesian uh, women writers of science fiction, uh, who I'm not sure if they are part of an association, but seem to be rather numerous, um, considering how few women authors of science fiction there are, as you know, as you point out, as well as kind of the distinction between this sort of grassroots or community-based association for the promotion of science fiction and the state-sponsored uh, support that uh, you start out the book with in Syria. Regardless of whether science fiction is being supported by uh, a, a sort of a wealthy state, um, for example, the in the case of the author Noura al-Nu'man um, in the Emirates, or uh, whether uh, it's a more sort of community-based effort Something that connects these authors across all these different contexts is their capacity to be inspired by 
longer textual traditions, local political issues, and and oral traditions, and science, and science as a major a major kind of source for imagination. Your final chapter is titled Muslim Futurisms. How did you approach the challenge of defining Muslim futurism when there is so much material that could potentially be included in this umbrella? Muslim futurisms is an enormously vast universe in itself. One could write entire books just about the futuristic architecture of one city, like Dubai or uh, or Doha, right? Um, let alone all the architectural futurisms uh, that e- exist uh, across the Muslim uh, world, uh, including the designs of mosques, for instance, that we have. Futurism exists in so many different ways. Uh, exists uh, in literature, exists in the visual art, and it is incredible, incredibly diverse. Um, we have top-down futurisms, so futuristic thinking, futuristic visions um, that come from government. So, for instance, the Gulf countries uh, have had national visions 2030, for instance, there's a Qatar National Vision 2030. These visions, they speak about knowledge economies, they speak about artificial intelligence, robots, sustainability, zero carbon uh, emissions. They uh, talk about the development of various sectors, including in the United Arab Emirates, uh, the space sector, where uh, most recently the UAE launched a mission uh, to Mars, right? So we have these government visions uh, of a scientifically and technologically infused future. However, uh, we also have bottom-up futurisms. Uh, we also have grassroots futurisms. We have also like radically different uh, futures from the current present, uh, but radically different futures uh, that are uh, that are at times more uh, democratic or at times also, are more religious, right? So if we associate some of the uh, futurisms that have come out of Saudi Arabia uh, or the United Arab Emirates in recent years uh, as very secular, as in some ways futuristic visions that seem to push back against uh, the power of religion, uh, where we also see Islamic kind of futurisms, vision, ideas, imaginations, uh, that don't see don't see uh, the future as devoid of religion, uh, but rather a future that is uh, infused with religion, that is rich in religious symbols. And, uh, and I would like to point here to the work of Saks Afridi, a Pakistani, New York-based artist uh, who has created uh, a work called Insider Outsider, uh, where he puts the global icon of the flying saucer or the unidentified flying objects, the UFO, on a prayer carpet. Or he has another work called Space Mosque, 
he c combines uh, uh, like a kind of space futurism uh, with mosque architecture, traditional Islamic architecture. These kinds of futurisms indeed show that there is a future to Islam and then there is a future to religion in general, even in outer space. Uh, and this is a kind of vision that is different from the, uh, from the Star Trek vision by uh, Gene Roddenberry. Uh, so uh, if you look at the typical crew uh, on the bridge of uh, a Star Trek spaceship, uh, like the Starship Enterprise, you will find uh, incredible diversity on that crew, right? You would have men as well as women, you would have aliens as well as humans, you would have uh, a robot or an android such as Data uh, on the Star Trek The Next Generations Enterprise, uh, but you don't have visible representatives of human religions as part of Starfleet. Uh, so there is no hijab-wearing Starfleet officer or uh, high-ranking official of uh, the United Federation of Planets. And uh, I think Muslim futurists uh, have tried to, uh, to emphasize how in, uh, how, in contrast to that Star Trek imaginary, um, religion, including Islam, can indeed persist until the, uh, the 22nd or 23rd or 24th century uh, and not just survive, but thrive. I love the way you brought in the uh, episode um, in 2017 where Blair Imani um, dressed up in, in Star Trek cosplay with a hijab and the, the sort of conversation and, and unfortunately Islamophobic um, remarks that it produced and um, uh, yeah, I think I think a lot of listeners um, may be inspired by futures in which we, um, as you know, uh, people of color, as religious people, um, can see ourselves in the future. Uh, and I think that that um, that understanding of futurism, as you say, um, for example, in Afrofuturism, of um, of the intersection of imagination, technology, the future, and importantly, liberation, is something I'd really love to see more mo uh, more Muslim science fiction writers and more writers of Islamic science fiction engaging within the future. Um, going back to the you know the trope of um, science fiction being about uh, colonialism, I think many thinkers of of native origin who have have posited futurisms that are more liberatory have asked us to think about space as a horizon rather than a frontier and um, i will plug a an episode of the ventricles podcast called canoes in space with professor eli nelson for anyone who would like to learn more about that um there's one more question uh if you want to uh <laughs> respond but out of all of the films and which we didn't get to discuss as much um and novels that you wrote about and as well as the work of visual artists what was your favorite probably the uh those works by uh Sachs afridi uh who uh, are visionary in its conceptions uh but also uh technically extremely uh, well executed. Uh, so 
Saxafridi has great experience with uh, marketing, with graphic design, uh, but he also has an understanding of traditional crafts uh, such as carpet making. Uh, and I, I love many, many uh, artists and their work. I also admire uh, the resilience and immense creativity of somebody like Ayham Jabbar, uh, who is in Damascus, a city of course, uh, plagued by shortages of all kinds, including electricity. Uh, but while I find so many artists inspiring and writers, if I had to uh, pick one, it would be, probably be uh, Saks Afridi's work. Professor Detterman has been incredibly generous in providing us with a rich bibliography and several images that were mentioned in this episode, as well as those that uh, can be found in his book. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, uh, Matthias. It has been an absolute pleasure. Big thanks to you, Shireen, for having me. And I really, really appreciate your efforts and uh, those of everybody on the Ottoman History Podcast team. Uh, you are rendering an incredible service uh, to our field and to public education in general.